Good morning, brothers and sisters. As always, it is a blessing to see so many people here. Uh, hello, everybody at home. Trust you are all keeping well. Um, if you have your Bibles, please have them on the ready for over the past few weeks, say several weeks actually, we have been doing a study on various women in the Bible and seeing the grace of God upon each of them in their specific context. Whether Leah and the journey for her to discover her true identity and going beyond the love of a man or the bearing of children, whether Jochebed and her joint venture of stepping out by faith with the things that were in her control, but also trusting in the Lord with those things that were beyond her control. And then last week, we looked at Martha with her change of focus and the reprioritizing of her life, specifically in connection with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we could spend numerous Sundays looking and studying at, sorry, studying the various women in the Bible and draw lessons from God's grace upon each of them whether it's the Syrophoenician woman of Mark 7 that referred to herself as a dog and that she would eat the scraps from the master's table, or Anna in Luke chapter 2, while as a widow of 84 years remained in the temple serving God in prayer and fasting while she awaited the arrival of the redemption of Israel the Lord Jesus Christ. We can look at, say, the woman with the issue of blood in Matthew chapter 9 that she had suffered for 12 years who, when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, was not only healed completely but caused Jesus to stop in his tracks because there was something about the touch that she made, that touch of faith that earned his recognition. Or you could look at the widow of Mark chapter 12, uh, the widow that gave so little, those two copper coins, and yet gave so much. These lessons of humility and perseverance, of patience and commitment, of conviction and faith and of trust and generosity are all possible because of the grace bestowed upon each of these individuals. These four women referred to here was directly in connection with the grace bestowed upon them in their meeting with and being ministered to by the person of Jesus Christ, who is to be and must always be our focus. And I would like for you at some stage to look at the various women in the Bible, or the various men of the Bible, but I would like you, for your own personal study, to have a look at how God deals with people. People who are told in Scripture who are just like you and I, who have the same weaknesses, the same failings, and see the grace of God upon each of them. And you'll be surprised what the Lord will reveal to you about yourself in those studies. And so today, I am going to look at one more woman in the New Testament, most probably bringing this series to a close for now. But 
we're going to look at one more person in the New Testament, a woman where we see the greatness of Jesus as he reveals once again God's grace upon her. And that's found in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through to 17. So if you'd like to bow your heads, and we'll open in a word of prayer. Father, as we have sung this morning, that it is Christ and Him alone who is the cornerstone of our faith. That it is Him and Him alone that we are to have our eyes upon. That it is Him and Him alone that has taken us from darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. And now we pray this morning as we look into your word, you reveal the person of Christ to us again, Him and Him alone. That everything that is distracting us, everything that is burdening us, everything that takes our eyes off you will be put to the side so that we might see you in all your majesty and in all your glory and that you in turn will speak to our hearts. Father, we lay ourselves before you now and ask that you will have your way with us. Please speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As always, I like to mention a little bit of context, and I want to view this particular text in context as well. If you look at Luke chapter 6, you read how the Lord heals a man's withered hand. He summons his 12 disciples, how he teaches and heals, how he proclaims the Beatitudes, how he announces woes, elaborates on genuine love, and also explains what true judgment is, and then he explains how fruit or what fruit identifies that you should know them by their fruit while he ends the chapter of chapter 6 teaching on having the right foundation, the wise man who builds his house upon a rock and the foolish man that builds it on sand. This brings us to Luke chapter 7 and verses 1 to 10 we read how Jesus goes to Capernaum where he encounters one of the greatest examples of faith from of all people a Roman centurion. An example that we feel the effects of even now, 2,000 years later. There's a ministry called Under the Fig Tree Ministries, and they take trips into Israel. And this one gentleman says that this encounter Jesus has with this Roman centurion could be, now this is his speculation, could be considered a breath of fresh air for the Lord. The reason being is that the very people who are supposed to get it, the very people that have an insight into what the Lord Jesus is doing or what God's plan is supposed to be, the very people that should understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, those people that should see Jesus, recognize Jesus, and align him with the Scriptures didn't see a thing. And so Jesus sees a man, a Gentile, a Roman centurion who recognizes his authority, who recognizes his power and says, you don't even have to come to my house. You just say the word and I know that he'll be healed because I'm a man of authority. And if I say a man to do this and he'll do it. And that's why Jesus was astonished, marveled at this man's faith. And so he's like, wow, that's quite amazing to think that this faith which pleases God, according to Hebrews 11.6, is what a Roman centurion demonstrates for the Lord. And it is from here that Luke jumps to our text today. He goes from Capernaum to Nain. Now, Nain is a pleasant, beautiful place. 
with rolling green fields, with rolling hills and green fields. And according to the map, it's roughly 35 to 40 kilometers southwest of Capernaum. Nain means pleasant or beautiful, which could also describe to an extent the way Jesus would be feeling after having this experience with the centurion. Once again, that's my speculation. I'm not saying that's what it is. But that's a fair walk that he's doing. And this is what brings us to our text today in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Read with me if you have your Bibles open. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, which means pleasant. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. So we have Jesus and his disciples along with a crowd that are journeying with them. And they're heading into the city. At that same moment, another crowd of people are exiting the city, but this is a somber procession. As the crowd leaving this place called Pleasant, we're experiencing a moment that could be considered something far less than pleasurable. This is a funeral procession led by a dead boy on a mat, carried by others, and followed by a mother grieving the loss of her only son. Now, it's standard practice in this culture that when a person had passed away, unlike today where we wait a few days before we have the burial, they would, as soon as the death happened, would wash the body, would wrap it, put it on a mat, and then transport it to a tomb where they would prepare the body for burial in the tomb with the necessary spices for burial. But these spices were to promote decay, not preserve the body. This was to promote decay. So this young man had just died. The mother has just washed her dead son. She has just wrapped her dead son. She's just placed her dead son on a mat and is now behind him while this entourage is being led by a dead boy and the mother is right behind him experiencing loss, experiencing grief, grief over this and another, another loss because this man had just died. She's probably taken him to be buried with his dad. This is loss upon loss because as we're reminded in verse 12, She's already lost her husband. She's a widow. Her heartache would have been overwhelming. And it is here we see the first act of God's grace upon her. Like Leah, who existed in a loveless marriage in Genesis 29. Like Moses, who was drawn to a burning bush in Exodus 3. Like the children of Israel, who were in their misery and in their chains crying out to God in Exodus 3, 7, we read these three things in these three instances that the Lord saw them in their need. The Lord saw them in their hurt. The Lord saw them in their cry. And then he responds specifically, like to Leah, like to Moses, like to the children of Israel, like to this woman here. And this is the first lesson we draw from the greatness of our God. 
the greatness of Jesus' compassion. The greatness of Jesus' compassion. In Luke chapter 7, verse 13, we read, When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. The Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. I don't know what issues you are going through in your life. I don't know what struggles you encounter moment after moment. I don't know how isolated or lonely that you feel at this particular time. But I do know this, regardless of what you think and regardless of how you feel, the Lord sees you. And his heart moves towards you. And he speaks his words of comfort to you. Because it is in this great need that he reaches out to this woman. She doesn't ask for it. She's not praying for it. She's experiencing nothing but grief, heartache, and loss. And yet the Lord sees her, moves to her, and speaks to her. This is the compassion of our Lord, the compassion of our Savior. Now, if you'll bear with me, see, Luke makes a deliberate choice in the use of his words here. You see, throughout all of chapter 6, Luke refers to Jesus, Jesus passing through the fields in 6.1, Jesus answering in 6.3, Jesus said in 6.5, Jesus is accused in 6.7, Jesus knew in 6.8, We can see in chapter 7 that Jesus had finished in 7.1, or how Jesus heard in 7.9. Even in today's text, in verse 11, we read how it was Jesus who entered the city of Nain. But here in this verse, here in this moment, in this moment of loss and grief, in this moment of heartache, we read that it is the Lord who saw that it was the Lord who saw her and that it was the Lord's heart that went out to her and that he was moved with compassion for her, that it was the Lord who approached her and the Lord that spoke to her these words, don't cry. You see, Jesus gives the implication or gives the inference that we're looking at a relational God, someone who knows our name and whom in Jesus Christ we know his name too. That through Jesus Christ, we can call him, call not only friend, but we can cry out, Abba, Father. He knows our name. We know his name. When it refers to Lord, it speaks to his authority. It speaks to his power. It speaks to his sovereignty. It speaks to how he knows and his control of every situation that he comes across. And so it is not Jesus who comes to her. He approaches her as Lord Because it is in the Lord Jesus Christ, she has hope. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ, she finds life. It is the Lord Jesus Christ where we receive purpose. It is in the Lord himself, and it is the Lord that speaks to this woman here. The Lord Jesus in saying the right thing and at the right time. In this case, these two words, don't cry, which may not have meant anything. But I do know this, that when the Lord speaks... Things happen. We read in the scriptures how he spoke to the storm, peace, be still, and it stopped. We read in the scriptures how God created in the first chapter of Genesis that he spoke and the universe came into being. We know that he can speak order into chaos. 
We know that he can speak peace into trouble. We know that he can speak life into death. I read in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11, it says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. And when that righteous person is Jesus Christ, wow, the mouth of Jesus Christ is more than a fountain of life, it's a fountain to life eternal. I read in Proverbs 15, verses 1 to 4, and you read in James chapter 1, uh, sorry, chapter 3 about the power of the tongue, but in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, you just take the first half, and I've got it up there. A gentle answer turns away wrath. 1a, a, the tongue of the wise adorns knowledge in 2a, and verse 4a, the soothing tongue is a tree of life. And while, like I said, those two words he speaks to the widow was don't cry, may not have meant much to her, the fact that it comes with Jesus means that he's expressing to her how much she is loved by a great God, by a loving Father. Now, like many of us, we feel the pressure of life. Things that burden us, stresses of work that consume us, worries of children that can overtake us. We can experience the pain of loss, whether it be the loss of loved ones, whether it be the loss of friendships, whether it be the loss of control, whether it be the loss of our finances, whether it be a loss of respect, When these things happen, when we experience such loss, this springs to the forefront of our mind and it clouds everything that we think and everything that we hear and everything that we look to. It's where we can't even see or hope to see that the Lord is in whatever's going on. That in that need, in that grief, or in that worry, like Leah, like Moses, like the children of Israel, like this widow, the Lord sees and his heart goes out. For this verse is a summary of God's heart in the gospel. Because we read in the scriptures how we cannot save ourselves from sin. Why? Romans 3.10 and 3.23, that there are none righteous. No, not one, for all have sinned. You've sinned and I've sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And because we're in that state, we are by nature as sinners, children of God's wrath, according to Ephesians chapter two, verse one. And because that is our state, we are by nature, like, and because God took the initiative in that state, should I say, in that state of being the children of God's wrath, God took the initiative He saw our need. He saw we were condemned to an eternity in hell separated from him. But we also read this. As he sees that, he moves toward us. And we also read this, Ephesians 2.4, that he is rich in mercy and his great love wherewith he loved us. That he who commended his love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That great initiative to deliver us from sin's hold, from sin's power, and ultimately from sin's presence. And it's continued that when we trust in Christ, we have the blessing of our heavenly Father continuing to see us, continuing to hear us, continuing to involve himself with us as his heart goes out to us as his 
children. He continues to see us in whatever state we are in, whatever that may be. Now, please don't misunderstand suffering consequences for stupid decisions. Please don't misunderstand that when you decide to dabble in sin and you get burnt, that's the consequence. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that God is not compassionate towards you. It doesn't mean that God is not involved himself with you. What it does mean is that you've got to be prepared if you want to live your own way separate from God's will and God's heart and God's desire and you get in trouble, that's on you. That's on me. You rob someone, you can't say, why God let me do that? I remember years ago, a guy was driving his car because I lived, used to live in the bush, dirt road, a lot of wombats around, a lot of kangaroos, um, a lot of dead animals. But I remember quite distinctly this one guy, he wasn't driving safely and he kept reaching for something. His wife was saying to him, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. We had like a Toyota Trooper, which was like a big two-ton truck, or even bigger than that, I think. But he flipped it because he wasn't paying attention. And he said, he said, after I picked him up from the hospital, he was, praise God, he was safe. His wife was safe. The guy that was in the back was safe. He wasn't actually wearing a seatbelt, so he got flung around. But where the car crushed was where this guy would have been sitting if he had a seatbelt on. That's not an advocate for not, for not wearing seatbelts, okay? Now, I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying that's the goodness of God by using this man's bad choice to save his life, all right? So anyway, yeah, so please, okay, that's real. it's online. Okay, but anyway. But I remember picking them up, and I'm driving home, and this, the gentleman who was driving says, why did God do that? And I says to him, bro, that wasn't God, man. That was you. And he goes, no, but he looks, no, 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 please don't. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I love you as a brother, but bro, you weren't driving properly. You weren't paying attention. You were doing something and not heeding the voice of your wife, and that's what happened. I'm sorry, man. That's on you. That's not God. He said God could have stopped it. Yeah, he could have, but he didn't. And the fact is, you've got to suffer that. And, and, and he didn't like that. I don't think he liked me after that. But that's okay. But that's right. This is what we do, isn't it? So please don't misunderstand that. And, and, what, and this is the compassion of God and Jesus Christ toward us, that even when we do make some dumb decisions, and when we do suffer the consequences for our sin, and we do suffer those things, God is still compassionate because he allows us the privilege to not only learn from that, but to repent from it as well. He'll make it known to us. And so even in that, even in that consequence, the compassion of God is such where he says, okay, now you've suffered the consequence, you've learnt, you can repent, and then carry on with the Lord. Such is the compassion of God in Jesus Christ. Because the greatness of God's compassion directed toward us does more than just give us feels. It does more than that. Regarding the situation that we're in, regardless of what's going on, because we read this, compress, this compassion that he has toward this widow and what follows after that. If you read with me in verses 14 and 15, it says this, then he went up, touched the bear that were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. You know what the second lesson is from this widow? That the Lord Jesus meets us where we're at. 
in verses 14 and 15. In this moment of loss, of grief, of heartache, we read that, once again, that is the Lord who saw her, that it was the Lord's heart that went out to her, it was the Lord who approached her, it was the Lord that spoke to her those words, don't cry. He then comes to her, he makes himself known in her need, he speaks words of comfort, and then follows up those words by meeting them where they're at. He goes to the dead man, to the dead boy, meets him where they're at, and then speaks life into his soulless body. He meets us where we're at. This is what grace is. This is what grace does. This is the loving heart of God that speaks directly to the soul that is hurting. We define grace as an undeserved kindness that cannot be earned, bought, or forced. So here we see the Lord Jesus meeting them where they are at and raising them up to the glory of God the Father to a place where life is restored. And you read through the scriptures, and I want you to understand this. Our compassionate God meets us where they're at. He meets people all throughout the scriptures where they are at. Whether it be a little man named Zacchaeus who's hanging out in a tree in Luke 19, who had his life transformed when the Lord invited him. Well, actually, no, the Lord didn't invite him to a meal. He invited himself to a meal at Zacchaeus' place. But he met Zacchaeus where he was at. You read how Nicodemus the Pharisee who stole away for a late night meeting with the, with the Lord Jesus himself and the truths of God were revealed to him in John chapter 3. Now granted Nicodemus went to him, but you notice the way the Lord Jesus interacts with him. He meets Nicodemus where he is at. You read about blind Bartimaeus when he screamed all the more, when people said, keep quiet, keep quiet, in Mark 10. And then Jesus says, bring him to me. It was out in the road in the context of being in life where Bartimaeus was. Jesus met Bartimaeus where he was at and enabled all of them to behold himself. This is the Lord meeting them where they were. And it resulted in them receiving sight, granted revelation, and having their lives transformed. Or in this case, with the widow, having life restored where there was death. For each of us, whatever we're going through, once again, whatever hardship we're experiencing, whatever trial, whatever obstacle, whatever, the Lord chooses to meet you where you are at. When we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, what do we read? Verse 20 says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I will meet you where you're at. I will sup with you and you with me. He meets us where we're at. So even when you're feeling isolated, it is the Lord's grace that comes to you and meets you in that isolation. When you're feeling hurt, it is the Lord's grace that comes to you and meets you in that hurt. The problem is, like the widow at times, like all of us, we can have our vision clouded because of our circumstances and we fail to feel the tap on the shoulder, the prompt of the Spirit, the hearing of God's Word, the, 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 the ministry and the peace that passes all understanding because we're clouded with everything else. And it's in those times, and, and I've always been, Steve Courtney, one of the elders of my church back in New Zealand, a, a man who was very influential in my life, but I always remember this, and I think this is a good lesson for us to learn, as regards being honest with God. 
being honest with him. Lord, I'm having trouble. Lord, this is hard. Lord, please help. Lord, I don't want to read my Bible. Lord, I don't want to reconcile with my husband. Lord, I, 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 I can't stand my kids. Being honest with God. So then he in turn will meet you where you are at. And then he changes the heart. He changes the mind. He transforms us to be more in the image of his son. And so with what we have here, as Jesus comes and meets her where she's at, we see what happens. Oh, I'm still carrying on the same thing. See, it's coming up to two months since camp has ended. And I heard this from Nick's study. And some of you may have fallen back into the slow grind of doing life, of just going through the motions, of getting up, going to work, etc., etc., etc. You go to church and all that sort of stuff. And while, while it's uh, a poor comparison, we might have felt that we have lost or our spiritual life has died to some degree. We might find that our spiritual vitality or our excitement about the things of God that happened at camp might have started to dwindle off because other things have crowded it. This is where we need to get back to the basics of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to have Him awaken our souls, that it is the Lord who breathes life, that is the Lord that restores, that is the Lord who is moving so that in each of our hearts approaching us as individuals as well as the church to awaken us and allow us to do what he has called us to. If you read in Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 3, this is the response when Ezekiel cries out and asks of the Lord, sorry, when the when the Lord asks of Ezekiel, should I say, can these bones live? And the Lord continues to say this. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. Make note of these words. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You see, the advantage we have over this widow in her context is this. We can make the deliberate choice to ask for him to revive us. We can cry out in our desperate need. We can ask for him to soften our apathetic hearts. We can ask for him to stir up our complacent souls. We can ask for him to, to take our eyes off things of this world, the shadows that we read about last week by John Piper. We can ask for our commitment to be reinvigorated. We can ask for that which dampens our relationship with him to be revived. Because of his love for us, he desires us to experience the greatness of living in abundance, of living in Christ, to have his God-breathed word fill us, his God-breathed word that are full of his divine promises to establish us for our heavenly calling. And in so doing, we are granted the same privilege that this widow experienced as well. To just, my third point, be in awe of Jesus. 
to be in awe of him because once again, in the moment of loss, in the moment of grief, in the moment of heartache where the Lord sees and whose heart went out to her, when the Lord approached her and spoke those words, don't cry, as the Lord goes to her and makes herself known, he speaks words of comfort and follows up those words by meeting them where they're at. Of course, the natural response would be just to be in awe of the works and of the words of grace. That's what they were witness to. We read in verses 16 and 17, they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. When was the last time you stopped, meditated, and stood in awe of the overwhelming greatness of God. When you ask, like the psalmist, what is man that you care for them, mere mortals that you think of them? I mean, think about that. The psalmist, David, writes the greatness of who God is, and he goes, what am I? Who am I that you would know me? We sang that. We sing it. That the greatest king would welcome me. To be in awe of such things places us in the right perspective of who he is and who we are in connection to him. When have you just sat in the presence of God and thanked him for what he has done? Thanked him that you are his child. Thanked him that he took upon himself what you and I deserved in judgment. When have you just sat there and said, thank you, Lord, for my wife and for my children? The other day I was with Emily and she was just walking. I was in the kitchen. She walked past with her walker and I just stopped. And I remember Auntie Milan telling me this. And she says, Auntie Milan and a few of the other aunties here at church just says, whenever they see Emily, she says, that's our walking miracle of what God has taken her through. That is our walking miracle. And I sat there and I saw my wife and I just said, thank you, Lord. I was moved because I looked at her and thought, this is the miracle of God in her. And, and I just, you get so accustomed to it that you completely forget the greatness of God's love demonstrated in someone like my daughter or in my wife. That's a miracle my wife even married me. It's a miracle that my wife is still married to me. I praise God for that. Just for you to enjoy, to spend time looking at the Word and being overwhelmed by God's goodness, to be in awe of God's heart that is revealed, of God's mind that is revealed within the Scriptures, to be in awe of that. When have you just sat there and been in awe of God, to praise God from the rising of the sun? Each morning is a new day to serve Him. Each morning is a new day to get to know Him a little bit better. Each morning is another day to serve Him and to thank God for that to appreciate what God has given, not only in our salvation, but in everything else afterwards. To be in awe of him. It's what makes Psalms so amazing to read. I put it up there, and I've only just put in excerpts, but read this. Psalm 57 is a demonstration of such things. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. 
They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise the Lord. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all all the earth. This is but one of the numerous portions of Scripture that speak to the greatness of our Lord, a psalm that for us is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He who saves us, he who delivers us, he who vindicates us, he who has taken our sin, he who has made us new, he who has done all so that we might have an eternity with our God and with our Savior, to be in awe of him. This is the challenge, and you can't help it if you see, if I could see that greatness. Imagine, just imagine what God would do in all of our hearts to reprioritize our lives, to reprioritize and value Him truly above all else. To be in awe of Him who made the blind to see, who made the deaf to hear, who made the mute to speak, who made the lame to walk, who raised the dead, who healed the withered hand. This is the Lord who saw us in our need. He saw us when we were lost in our trespasses and sins, who was moved with compassion to adorn himself in human flesh in order to meet us where we are at. How he lived sinlessly, proclaimed the love of God, and then demonstrated that love by being nailed to a cross for your sin and for my sin so that we could be born again through faith in him and be born again into a family that lasts to eternity through trust in our resurrected Savior, him who conquered death, him who intercedes for us, him who is coming again. The Lord Jesus, who, according to Adrian Rogers, who came the first time to die, is coming again to raise the dead. Who, when he came the first time, they questioned whether he was king. The next time the world will know that he is king of kings and lord of lords. The first time he wore a crown of thorns, the next time he will be wearing a crown of glory. The first time he came in poverty, the next time he is coming in power. The first time he had an escort of angels, the next time he will come with 10,000 of his saints. The first time he came in meekness, he is coming again in majesty. This is who we are to be in awe of. For this widow, she experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ in the most blessed of ways. Consumed in her grief, the Lord's heart moved in compassion in her need. She had the Lord himself step into her world. She didn't ask. She didn't expect it. She didn't even pray. But the Lord met her where she was at. And the miraculous came to pass. That resulted in her experiencing the blessing of God and the restoration of her son. For you and I who may be down or dry, for you and I who may be burdened, know too that the Lord sees you that the Lord has compassion on you, that the Lord desires to meet you where you're at in order for you and I to be in awe of his great love, of his great mercy, 
and of his greatness. To look anywhere else other than Jesus is just pointless. Thus, may the widow's lessons today be lessons that we will not only listen to, but lessons we will learn from, and then in turn lessons we live out. So with that, I'm going to close in a word of prayer. While I pray, could I ask the music team to come up again, and we'll close in a song after that. Uh, for everyone else, just want to bow your heads and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. And while we allow things to cloud our vision, while we have issues that arise within each of our lives that hinder our growth and our journey with you, I thank you that you come to us, that your heart of compassion goes out toward us like it did for the widow, that if your heart of compassion actually approaches us and meets us, sorry, meets us where we are at as you speak words of comfort, words of life, words of conviction to each of our souls. And Father, in the revelation of yourself, we might be in awe of your greatness and of your majesty. Father, please help us. Please give us a clear vision of your Son. Please help us to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, we ask you to move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.